Oh, okay. Let me tell you one thing, a reason why we should talk about this. If we talk about this and then share it, uh, share that we talked about it on Twitter and like find the creator of the movie, he will definitely notice. (laughs) (laughs) He'll notice. And then we'll get this thing going. But so, so what I, what I was saying was this movie, it's not visually appealing. You can tell it was a learning process to just make it and to, to make it happen at all is the success. Not, you know, not the, (laughs) not the visual fidelity, but if you can accept the way that it looks, what you get is this movie that has, has an incredible intuitive sense of action and cinematography that somehow works despite looking like it was made in 2009 (laughs) like it's this bizarre it's a it's a bizarre achievement like it it works as what it's trying to be which is a sci-fi action movie and it has all of the hallmarks of a sick of a successfully made film but it looks like it was made in a computer lab at high school. Um, and I think that is amazing. And uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. Sometimes that's a that's a treat in and of itself, just getting that thing made and yeah. done. How many projects do you, do you have, William, that you've been sitting on for years, if at all? Uh, I have I have plenty. I have one larger one I've been sitting on for years. I've never made anything that's two hours long, except for a course for Stanford. Is there anything that you've been working on continuously over a long amount of time? Because it's not no. that this guy was sitting on it. He, right. It's that he kept working on it. Uh, that's I, what makes it cool. I think of my work with Shauna um, on Snakeskin as a continuing project. At this point, we've been making music videos and visual art for her music for five years and looking back on it i i really do feel like and i've only really felt this in the last couple months i really do feel like we've made a body of work that feels like um a project rather than a bunch of random things wow that's so special. That <laughs> took this conversation in a little bit of a different direction than I was expecting. <laughs> I had wanted to say that um, much like what makes an antique or what makes something that's of archaeological significance, it's just time, right? Like a garbage heap from ancient Greece. That's archaeology. That's, mm-hmm. um, can, that's art. And much with this guy making spending 13 years making a movie, um, it's just the time put in. It's not even the the skill or the <laughs> vision. Or the final it's just result. The doing it, yeah. Well, or I mean, it's the it's the continuing to do it because if you do something every day for a certain amount of time, now it's a thing. It didn't right, yeah. matter what the initial vision was. Sounds like that is not what your snakeskin project is. That is truly 
a uh, a conceived and produced. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, maybe this is a little early treat of the day. It just this is an interesting conversation to me. Um, you know, this whole question of what it means to make things, and the uh, the the idea of like when when does a when does a project when does something become an art project? You know, something that exists over time as a developing work. That's a really interesting question, and I, I, I feel like I don't really hear that being asked very often. Part of the reason I was, um, part of the reason I watched this movie, The Exigency, on Amazon Prime, <laughs> <laughs> highly recommended. <laughs> highly recommended. Part of the reason I watched it because what is in my own personal art practice, I'm interested in the concept of good, bad, and of of stepping out of traditional. Uh, notions of taste and quality and thinking about things that look or feel or were poorly made but yet still have some kind of emotional content to quote Bruce Lee again Um, (laughs) honestly when you see Bruce Lee fight and the reason he's a legend um, is because he brings that emotional content to the body movement and the sounds he makes and the clothes that he wears. Like there is something that is seriously unique about him. And it, and I think he captured it perfectly with the phrase emotional content. And ever since I've heard that phrase, I've been using it all the time to think about why something works and why something doesn't work. The lack of that is why none of the lightsaber fights in any of the... <laughs> new Star Wars movies work. Yeah. Right? One through three, they're all terrible because there's <laughs> zero emotional content. This, I want to keep talking about this and I also want to introduce our podcast just in case someone <laughs> okay, doesn't bye. know what, what they're listening to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in anyway. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of EdTech Cafe, a podcast series produced by the educational technology team at Stanford Medicine. Our team sits at the intersection of art, science, and education, and in this space, we'll sit down with other media and production-savvy professionals to discuss how they use their talents to support science and improve educational outcomes across the globe. I'm Jessica Whittemore, and I'm joined by my invigorating co-hosts. William Bettini and Andrew Beck. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, last episode, William, I made you a promise that I was going to watch the first episode of Deep Space Nine because I basically haven't watched any Star Trek, despite having heard for years that I would love it. And um, (laughs) when I mentioned to my dad and my husband um, (laughs) that I had made this promise to you, they were both like, wait, what season? Uh, And they both, that's why I clarified with you, because neither of them could believe it, because it's pretty deep into 
uh, Star Trek, right? It's nowhere near the beginning. Um, and I got it. Okay, so I watched that first episode and I I like sobbed through <laughs> yes. a, large, a large swath of it um, because of the depiction of a strong uh, black single father and the grief that he deals with and like which this isn't a spoiler because it happens in literally the first 30 seconds of the episode um but his talk his journey with that grief like it was so human and the emotional if if a random season of star trek can hit me with that much emotional content in mm the first episode of just like a random one that a bunch of other people were like, why even watch that one? It hit me. And I'm, I'm totally going to start a Star Trek journey now um, (laughs) because of that. But even, even if like, I would like to complain for a second about that lead actors acting. uh, Cause he has, there's this thing in acting that's called projecting, which is where you, you just like, make your face look like the emotion that you want to portray instead of feeling the emotion. And I definitely thought that he was doing that through most of the episode. But when he was talking about his grief, he like settled into it more. So as soon as he got to the emotional content, it really worked for me. Thank you for making me watch that. (laughs) You know, even... Even hearing you describe that episode, I got like little tears in my eyes because I it is just such an incredible piece of TV. And I I don't know anyone's names yet, but like the the first officer who's fighting for her people with like a government Kira. That, that isn't working yet, Kira. Yeah. Kira. Um just like so many powerful characters really fighting for things that matter to them. I'm I'm totally hooked. Good, good. Also, I, also tearing up again. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, uh, Captain C- or well, Commander Cisco. In that first episode, the first two episodes, I feel like that his character and his characterization is even uncommon today. Like, you're like right to point out, like he is a strong black man who is a father and a leader of a space station. And you don't see that very often at all, even today. And to to make the choice to let Avery Brooks be who he was on that show as Cisco back then, I felt like it, I mean, that's, that's why I love Star Trek is it, it, it is groundbreakingly, inclusive and i that's the sort of vision that i love of the future of people is that reminds me because you pitched star trek as um like the only sci-fi that displays a utopia uh, like something that we'd want to be working towards in media um and i had a thought that that's also what Schitt's Creek is. Oh, yeah. Um, is It's also, because uh, I've read a few things on the internet, that it is a show that portrays like a best possible world 
a world free of misogyny and homophobia for the characters in it. Like, we're just gonna push all that aside. And this is just a town where women and gay people can exist as women and gay people. And it, mm. like, I think that's a reason why people love it so much because it is sort it's a utopic view. That's a great point. I, I had never, you know what? I mean, I feel like I probably had a similar attitude towards Schitt's Creek that a lot of people have towards Star Trek, which is uh, my fiance Shauna watches it. And uh, I, I took one look at the show and I was like, what is this? Why are you watching this? <laughs> and then and then I ended up watching some with her and I really liked it. And I didn't pick up on why what was working about it, but that totally sounds right to me. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. Yes. Well, uh, today we'll be joined by Dila Baumgartner, who is an instructional designer on our team. What do y'all look forward to listening to um, from our interview with her? Mm, well, she she's like done instructional design it seems in some form or another um for like most of her life yeah um <laughs> yeah and she even like applies it when you know to jobs where she's not officially an instructional designer so i think anyone just kind of thinking about that that role or thinking about working in the larger ed tech field can probably get some inspiration from the fact that you know she um or, or rather that that work, that that responsibility within the EdTech team is can be so, you know, um, diverse and can come from such uh, unique places. Yeah. We call her a know-it-all. Or rather, she called herself a know-it-all right. <laughs> after I implied it. And she's, that's totally spot on. <laughs> she's a wealth of knowledge. And I can't wait for you all to hear what she has to say. So... We've had a lot of intro today, and I think it's time for a little treat. We're getting another treat? <laughs> yeah, that was just a preliminary treat, but this is a treat of the day. 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 William. I was just thinking, what should like I do? Is that like in Rockin' Robin? Uh, So our treat of the day is something that William finds interesting, and it can be for literally whatever reason, any across a full spectrum from hating something to being inspired by it. Uh, So our flavor can be anything. What's our flavor today? Um, well, you know, our, our flavor is actually, um, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's have some seconds. I'll have another one. <laughs> um, <laughs> some more please. <laughs> because I want to keep talking about this idea of emotional content, which was going to be my treat of the day. Um, and then we just started talking about it. Emotional content. Okay. The reason, the reason I, I thought this would be perfect was, so as I mentioned, there's this scene uh, in a Bruce Lee movie um, where he uses the phrase emotional content. And I thought it, I, I just I Googled it because I personally have been finding that term really um, uh, helpful for me. And I Googled it and I found um, <laughs> I found um, 
a, a blog of a student at MIT who wrote about what Bruce Lee taught me about digital media using the phrase emotional content. Oh, no I way. It was, yeah, from... Uh, from wait, wait, William, are you, are you sure this isn't an article, a blog written by another version of yourself from another <laughs> timeline? It could be a different timeline. Um, uh, this is uh, from six years ago by Kellen Manning. And this is how he starts out his article. And I think this would be a great topic of discussion for us. This is how he starts it. Let me get this out of the way. Everything I know about producing content for digital media, I learned through Bruce Lee. <laughs> <laughs> to be more specific, I learned it through a small scene in his classic film, Enter the Dragon. It all starts when Bruce Lee discovers a young student walking around the temple. Upon seeing the student, he asks the boy to kick him. After a moment of apprehension, the student obliges, and, needless to say, Bruce Lee was less than impressed. He <laughs> calmly walks up to the student and says, What was that? An exhibition? You need emotional content. That's how he says it. With that, with that uh, enunciation. Okay, let's stop right there and think about the term emotional content. This is still Kellen Manning. I never I bet he didn't think anyone would be reading this on a podcast. <laughs> so, Manning continues. He's basically saying that doing something for the sake of doing it isn't good for anyone. You have to put feeling behind your actions in order to achieve your intended goal. Now let's put that in the realm of digital media for higher education. Before you post, tweet, write, or share, do you think about why you're doing it? Do you ask yourself what reaction or action you are trying to incite? Everything that you push out should mean something. That doesn't mean that everything you, you do should be important, but everything needs to have purpose, and that purpose should drive your overall goal. Now, back to Bruce and the student. After the kid delivers a series of kicks that impress Bruce, the master approaches his student and asks him, how did it feel to you? The young student then replies, hmm, let me think. Now this is when it gets really good. <laughs> Don't think, feel, Bruce says. It's like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so... There's a lot to unpack there. First, the idea of feeling more than thinking. Even for something that comes off as uninspiring, like registration deadlines or event notifications, you need to be able to conjure feeling. Why should anyone care about a deadline or an event approaching? There's a feeling you have to push, not an idea. Ideas are great, but it isn't until they push someone to feel something that action is taking, uh, taken. Okay, we're almost done. Next, let's talk about finger pointing to the moon. Let's say the finger is your outlet, i.e. Twitter or Facebook or a blog, and the moon is the message you are trying to get. With social media constantly evolving, 
people become so enraptured with what these tools can do, the finger pointing at the moon, that the story and the purpose, the heavenly glory, becomes secondary. So he kind of wraps up a little bit, reiterating some of these points. But I felt like I, I felt really happy to see somebody else loving this little moment from a Bruce Lee movie in this context. What do you what do you two think? I think that we talk about how we should only make stuff that has meaning a lot. We've like talked about it in set design, uh, flipping houses, <laughs> uh, the the books we read, the shows we watch. And I know that we keep coming back to it, but at, like at the end of the day, I don't know. It seems like the most important thing to me. Why would you do anything different? Yeah. yeah and I, go ahead. But yeah. Um, what I was going to say was um, the dichotomy between thinking and feeling is definitely something I've been thinking about um, quite a bit when it applies to not just work, but like my own art. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think anyone can can successfully say that, you know, you can completely dispense with thinking, you know, because, you know, logically, ra- you know, rationalizing things out gets the job, can get the job done. It can get things organized. Um, you know, it can put the mm-hmm. ducks, ducks in a row or whatever the phrase is. Um but really, when it comes to the feeling, uh, and it, you know, there's the meaningful intentions behind it. Um, it really, yeah, like takes it to a new level where that's the part that connects with the audience, with the learner, whomever, um, and that's the part that you remember as an audience or a learner um, is what you felt. And what the experience was. I'm also struck by what some might see as the irony of a martial artist being the one to have this wonderful comment on emotional content, because you may think of martial arts as being something that's as far from emotion as possible. But the thing is to do what you love, like, Bruce Lee is, was such a master at that because that's what he loved and he spent all of his time doing it. And that's sort of how we should all approach our life. Like it doesn't always matter if what you're doing, what you're spending time on is something that is useful to people or that holds value for other people right now. If you love it, then you should spend time doing it and that might grow towards something later, such as exigency, now streaming on Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, and it sounds it sounds pretty uh, closely related to what we talk about later with Dila. Right. Um, just instructional designing for large corporate environments versus um, a place with a little bit more freedom, like a university academic um, setting where part of what comes with the freedom of experimenting and playing with new tools and trying out different things um, comes this emotional content, um, 
come comes the feeling and you know because we don't experiment and we don't try out new things unless we feel like there's a purpose behind it and we you know it's something that we feel and we endorse not just from like a rational you know get things done perspective but you know to really communicate the message yeah i thought um uh you know when dila brought that up i i was thinking something similar i it it struck me this is a little this is a little bit of context i feel like people need for that for the interview it was essentially like our team was was initially funded through a large grant to do like 22 cme courses online and um we experimented heavily with technology with each of the different courses from video to interactive work to um interactive video and vr and things like that but uh the recurring theme of bedside manner and um communication between uh the doctor and the patient that w that was the thing that bubbled up over the years at, and we became really i think it, uh aware and sensitive to that as an essential component of what we are making so now i feel like all of our work we're we're very sensitive to give some emotional storytelling to to uh all of our work um one thing i wanted to say that was i found very fascinating in doing a little bit of research on this emotional content quote was that I there are tons of other people who have do, done these uh, little articles or blog posts on what this quote means to them. Uh, I read one, but there's another one um, about the need for male role models in school for boys because we need boys to grow up uh and behave in a non-violent way <laughs> and have good role models uh, there's is somebody wrote a medium article on it that that's pretty high up on the on google um and there are other people who who are just like writing about this i feel like it's kind of incredible um that this phrase has so much potential to apply to people's lives in different ways even when he was speaking specifically about martial arts, you know, in the scene, something I left out, which which is after the first kick, um, he says, you need emotional content. Then the student tries again, faster this time, and he says, Bruce Lee says, I said emotional content, not anger. And then he explains, if you... Uh, point at the moon and your focus is on your finger, you miss all the heavenly glory. And I just felt like that, you know, I don't know. There's something so mysteriously satisfying about this phrase um, and so mysteriously universal. Well, that's because he was speaking from the heart, right? Yeah. It may have been about martial arts, but because he was speaking from his lived experience and from his heart that's what makes it applicable 
You know what all this emotional content talk uh, reminds me of is, um, and I, I, I'm just bringing this up because I always want to take advantage of a chance to plug my favorite movie, which is called Distant Voices Still Lives. It's from 1988. It's a oh. semi-autobiographical film of, um, from the filmmaker uh, Terrence Davies. Um, and it's about like a Liverpool family, a working class family um, in the 1940s and 50s. But the way in which it's made, I think, is something that I want to point out, which is it, it's, it's basically how I describe it is either <laughs> the genre post-musical, which I, I'm not going to go into, but it's basically <laughs> because a bunch of the characters are always singing songs in the movie. But it's, it's, it's also a series of tableaus and vignettes um, that are achronological so it 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 can jump anywhere from um the the family when the when the kids were were just young babies to the oldest son getting married or excuse me the oldest daughter getting married to the death of the father so it just jumps around in time and when you watch it the first time it it can really feel disorienting as to like where things are where and when things are happening and I think a lot of that where and when, when it comes to movie watching um, and our experiences with movies and stories, really, is to really just kind of, you know, our instinct is to like rationalize and try to figure out what is going on. But I think the movie makes it makes this a point where it's more about being present in the vignette, in the moment, and really just trying to parse out and feel the emotional content. There's no other way to say it. Whether it's um, a family congregating um, from the for the death of the father to um, just the sheer joy of singing along at a wedding, um, the the point of the movie is to cycle through these memories to create this um, this mosaic of emotions. I, I you know that that part is what struck me is. You know, like trying to remove the rationalization aside, just typical ways of watching a movie or experiencing a story and just really focusing on how like how the characters are feeling, um, what they're thinking, you know, and and be a part of that experience. So you really at the end of it feel like you've lived a life with this family. Wow. I'm going to watch this on my vacation. <laughs> it's a little hard to find, so um, listeners can always email me or reach out to me on social media if they want to find a way to watch this. <laughs> uh, Off the books. <laughs> you know, it's funny, um, the way you describe that uh, distant voices still lives reminds me of essentially the the kind of finale of that first Deep Space Nine episode. <laughs> Cisco um, accidentally uh, flies into a wormhole where he encounters these beings that experience time non-linearly. So where for Cisco, he is trying to move on from um, the tragic death of his wife and um be the commander of the space station and just start his life over again um this uh alien species doesn't perceive time as 
um, a straight arrow. In fact, they experience time happening, the past, the future, and the present all happening at the same time. And what they try, and, and Cisco, in attempting to communicate who he is to these aliens, tries to explain the concept of linear time to them. And the aliens use the fact that Cisco continues to live in his trauma, the trauma of his wife's death, to prove to him that he is, in fact, not living his life in a linear fashion. In every moment, he is, he is um, inextricably attached to that moment of having to leave his wife behind. Um, and it's, it's like a tearjerker. It's so incredibly hard to uh, um, communicate like how effective this scene is. But um, I think in that moment too, it's, you know, just this, this concept that like the emotional content of our lives means so much more than the sequence of our lives that you can you can live in a moment if it is one of those moments like rich and full of emotional content um and i feel like that is something that is important to remember just as people also in you know whatever your job is whatever you like teaching or making courses or whatever but like as a person like being able to acknowledge the importance of um the the emotional content of your life meaning more to you than the linear narrative of it i think that i don't know it's just such an incredible realization it's kind of, it's kind it's of like really much, being yeah. it's kind of like being worried about legacy versus um experiencing the moment that scene made me think of our Q-centered therapy course where we've, we're trying to teach therapists how to help children look at experiences that have traumatized them and that have continued to shape how they feel, how they think, and how they react and behave. Yeah. And that acknowledging the impact that that has on you just the acknowledgement alone can help you move forward to live a healthier and happier life and it just it like reminded me of the important work that we do and how grateful I am that we have a place where we um, have the freedom and like the mission statement to really bring stories and use emotions to help people be better doctors and be better people. And I'm just so grateful. And I think we should stop. I'm going to cry again. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I feel like we've gone from an ed tech podcast to like a self-help inspirational, you know, lifestyle podcast. Honestly, with William and I being on a podcast together, I think that that was like destined to happen. <laughs> I knew it was like written into our secret uh, objectives. 
I'm fine with that. You know, I think it's so cool that like we can um, bring ourselves into our, our work and our own interests. Like, I mean, part of why I asked, I asked Dila what being a bartender uh, means to her as an instructional designer is because I feel like that, I feel like this sort of thing is our secret sauce, you know, like our personal commitment to our work means, means that it's, it's part of the things that we love and the things that we love can be part of the things that we make. Uh, and, and, you know, we can learn from something like Star Trek or serving drinks or distant voices, uh, still lives. And then, and then I don't know, have it be part of what we do. Yes. Why else watch things? Can you I, know? It's awesome. Can I share one moment of kismet and then we'll bring Dila out here? Um, I, oh my gosh, I haven't even told anyone this because it's in, ooh, because it's in escrow and that's scary. But Muhammad <laughs> and I bought a house um, and we are like incredibly lucky and grateful and can't believe it. Um, and there are so many things that go with that. But one of the first things that's like foremost in my mind is moving from our tiny apartment where we don't have hardly any furniture or art into this larger home that has m more rooms than we have now. So we have like full rooms that don't have any existing furniture or art Whoa. for it. Um, so I've, and also now we don't have any money because it's all going into the house, right? So I've been like looking at Craigslist and going to thrift stores to start thinking about how I want to design basically our lives for going forward, um, which is so fun. But I went to the Habitat for Humanity Restore uh, thrift shop this weekend to try to find some furniture just to like see what's there. And I found this beautiful antique frame that's huge with intact glare-free glass in it and like beautiful wood pieces and gold trim. And I brought it home just for the frame. And after staring at the picture for a few minutes, I realized that it was a uh, an illustration of the Matterhorn in Switzerland, mm. which is one of the handful of places that Muhammad and I went on our European adventure in 2017. And so to like find this piece where the, the art or the frame was a selling point for me and to then <laughs> realize that it was a recognizable um a place that I'd been with my loved one uh, on a trip that now we can put in our home. It's just like, Aww. man, I knew I was drawn to that for a reason. <laughs> um, but I'm enjoying trying to find things that are meaningful to me to just decorate our home. Um, it's a journey that's just started. Uh, and I'm sure I'll have more weird things that I find in thrift stores that I'll be talking about because I get really excited about thrifting. And you're basically um, loading the house with emotional content. <laughs> yes. Oh. 
And right now I'm preloading our apartment with that emotional content. We have <laughs> an uptick in the number of antique uh, stuff that doesn't fit in our apartment at the moment. Congratulations, but, though. That's a big, a big step forward, getting yeah, a house. Wow. Thank you. It feels unreal. Let's get, I think I see Dila. Dila. Dila, hey. over here. Over here. Oh, no. She has her AirPods in. Dila, what is this cat's name? That one is Lily. Hi, Lily. Lily is a lovely silver tabby. I do have two. No, she, she is the, the golden she's... lion cat. Well, she's called, well, she, she's definitely part color point, is what I've been told. And they're from the same litter, so they have some shared parentage somewhere. But one is aren't, clearly a lion and one is clearly a tiger. Aren't cats amazing <laughs> like that? I once had a a lovely brown tabby named Towser who had the best little white sock paws. And her brother, Hakim, was just like beautiful, smoky, gray, Persian-looking cat. And they were from the same litter. All their siblings were black and white. We always joke because as far as them being from the same litter, the only information or the only knowledge we have of that was what the Humane Society told us. Like, oh, they were found together. And they fight a lot. I mean, they, you know, when it's cold, they love each other because then they go in for snuggles in the warmth. But I think a lot of the time she's just really annoyed with him. And we used to joke, like, what if they weren't from the same litter? What if she just ended up there and then was stuck with him forever? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. They're not actually siblings. They just fight like siblings. Yeah, could be. Could be. How do cats come from the same litter yet, like, look so different they can have different fathers what uh, even in the same litter in the same litter yes yeah, a cat can be impregnated by multiple toms whoa a tom is a male cat it's not not the only animal actually a tom is a male cat yeah not the only animal humans can too it's just very rare what for real <laughs> yeah because essentially you can actually drop an egg from each tube and if you have sex with two guys oh. in a short period of time, you can end up with two babies with two different daddies. <laughs> Please don't put that in the podcast. Oh, yeah, we might bleep <laughs> yeah, out some things. I think this is the first time the word sex has appeared on the well, Tech Cafe podcast. Yeah, no, we this, don't even um, talk about that. This isn't Mari, so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone watch Mari remember that? Oh, I love Mari. Remember his face. Mari Povich. It was like whenever... Um, Whenever I was sick from school and staying home or any summer vacation, I would end up watching Mari because it was on at like 11 o'clock in the morning. Kind of jealous that your mom let you watch TV when you were homesick. <laughs> it was that and it was uh, Price is Right, yes. which I really liked. And um, I don't know. My Jer mom watches Wendy Williams now. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Springer used to also uh, take up some of those Jerry times, Springer, but I, yeah. I al always preferred Maury to J Jerry Springer. Some of the fights always seemed a little staged. Yeah. I could never stand watching any of those shows. But anyway, here we go. 
Our guest, <laughs> our guest today is Dila Baumgardner, who joined our team as Stanford EdTech's first instructional designer to manage and produce interactive online courses with the Stanford Office of Continuing Medical Education. Previously, she worked at Apple and UCSF, also in instructional designer roles, after receiving her master's in instructional technologies from San Francisco State University. She's also an influencer in the Adobe Education Exchange Program, where she connects and teaches like-minded individuals who are also involved in the intersection of education and technology. Welcome, Dila. <laughs> You're making a face. <laughs> I am uh, I am deeply impressed with your stalking skills. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's all Andrew. <laughs> or Andrew. Wow, that that was some serious internet research there. So when I'm when I say I'm prepping for EdTech Cafe and my stand up, you know, that's really what I'm doing. I'm just that's stalking your LinkedIn. Interesting. What did, what did he unearth that you were Well, it's just I recognized a lot of those phrases from like or like mm. the way they were described from different sources. So I was like, okay, there was that was from my LinkedIn, and I'm pretty sure one of those was from the thing <laughs> Adobe published on their site, and then one of those might have been actually from my profile on the Adobe Education Exchange, which is even that's right, to me. <laughs> that's right. And they differentiate; they have like different tiers of influencer. Mm. You know, like the highest tier, I think you get trendsetter um, as like your badge, but. You were just a measly influencer, Dila. Yeah, so much of what I do there, I, it's more, well, once I stopped teaching high school, a lot of what I do with the Adobe Education program is more kind of behind the scenes or support role kind of a thing, like helping other teachers or whatever. For the couple of years that I was teaching while I was an Adobe Education leader, I did a lot more, but they hadn't launched the exchange yet. And then right when they launched the exchange was when I stopped teaching, so... So that's one little part I, I didn't mention in the bio is that you were a high school teacher. Was that a bartender like? <laughs> at the same time? <laughs> Good time. You were a high school teacher and bartender? Not at the same place, but yeah. <laughs> like night and day. Yeah, no, I taught high school and then I, uh, well, I mean, I was, I was, uh, I started Whoa. off at the bar um, and then I started teaching. So. But you, when you taught high school, you taught film and media stuff so you are already way into that yeah this i mean what i'm doing now is a weird byproduct of what i started doing there so i did uh, i majored in film i went to college with my dad we both got film degrees together and i absolutely don't like los angeles and moving there just was not an option for me personally i just i couldn't handle it um so in an attempt to use the degree i just spent six years getting um I went back to my alma mater to to take my little sister there so to try and get her interested in the school. And that's where one of my previous teachers told me, you know, we're looking to start a film program. Would you would you be interested in helping us out with that? And in the private schools, you just need a master's to teach. You don't need a credential. There's really no credential for teaching digital arts. Like it's a classical art credential or English, I think, is like the only options. So I opted for a master's so that I could keep teaching. And then just kind of the winds shifted and I ended up pursuing what I got my master's in more than I did the teaching. Wow. So you just went to the school like on a visit and then Yeah, it's that an all girls directly. It's an all girls high school and I was I was 
kind of Susie High School. Surprise, surprise. I was involved in everything. Um, I had horrible grades, but I was uh, really involved in all the extracurriculars. Like I did student council. I played sports. I did the clubs. And then I went home and played video games instead of doing my homework. So um, I had a good relationship, though, despite that with a lot of my teachers. And my sister, my mother was told me that my sister was going to go there whether she wanted to or not. Uh-huh. And that had always been something I had observed as a student, which was that doesn't go well. You, you can't really force somebody, in my opinion, into single-sex education. They gotta want to be there. Otherwise, they act out. They rebel. They don't. They don't get what they should be getting out of it because they're so fixated on the fact that they don't want to be there. So I said, let me take her. Let me be the one to take her to open house and see if I can kind of steer her towards an interest. And it worked out really well. It's exactly what happened. She got to see the relationship I had with all of these teachers that I actually hadn't seen many of them in five years um, and the kind of sense of community that an all-girls education has. And she decided, actually, I do want to go here. It's like, oh, phew, that worked out well. Um, and so... <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, and in, in that conversation, both with my principal and a, a former teacher, I ended up teaching a, a summer program. And since that was successful, they said, okay, let's, let's bring it into the curriculum. And it started off as an after-school program, and then it became a regular class. Shout out to Presentation High School. They were definitely <laughs> on the cutting edge. It was a broadcast journalism class. Was The after-school program became a news program where we, excuse me, where we produced um, weekly news uh, that went over our closed-circuit television system. Uh, and uh, then the... Curriculum stuff was a video production. How did the teacher that you spoke to uh, know that that's what you were into? Were you into that in high school? Yeah, he was. um, I still think that was risky hiring him because he was hired as like a 21 year old uh, graphic arts computer guy. And when I was looking for what I wanted to do with my. I spent most of my time in the computer lab and he noticed, he's like, Hey, I see you're doing a lot of graphic stuff. Would you, would you be interested in learning 3d animation? Like, uh, yeah. And so my, um, my elective for my senior year ended up being just an independent study, uh, with him learning, um, 3d studio max. And so he and I stayed in touch. Um, and his wife, his wife went to presentation too. And, um, she was my best friend's swim coach, so I, I knew her. And uh, we stayed in touch a little bit over throughout college, so he knew that I'd majored in film. I was an animation major in the very beginning for almost three years. I was an animation illustration major, and I switched into film because San Jose State's program is, like, top five in the country, and I just, I was kind of not, I was surrounded by people who were really good, and I was okay. Like, I don't want to go through three rounds of portfolio review and waste my time. I'd rather get my degree and, you know, develop my skills later without the pressure of basically competing with people that quite frankly I will never, never quite be as good at. <laughs> cough, cough, we, who <laughs> has graduated from that program successfully. Um, and I was glad I did. But uh, yeah, so he knew and he said, hey, you'd be a great person to do this. And the school has a history of hiring alums. There's probably about 60% of the faculty are alums. Uh, Hui, who Dila just mentioned, is um, one of the illustrators on our team who we have yet to interview for this podcast. All right. That's really interesting to know that you had a few 
um, academic paths in front of you, all of which could have led to working at EdTech. It's a very kind of interesting way how I got here. I was almost pulled back into the bartending world. Um, while I was at UCSF, it was a part-time job, and I ended up managing a wine bar for about three months and was kind of glad that didn't work out because that industry has a way of kind of holding on to people. And um, at the same how do you time, mean? how do I mean? Oh, well, it's, it's just, it's a, I don't know how to explain it. You kind of get, it's, a, it's an easy place to get comfortable because you're making a lot of cash. Mm, um, yeah. And it's a very much, it's a community. The service industry is a very small community. Everybody knows everybody. It's very familial, for better or for worse, the drama included. Um, and it was, it was easy. It was just, it was easy money, honestly. Uh, bartending, and, and I love wine, and I love food, so the chance to work with those <laughs> things was awesome. But it's hard, it's a hard industry to be in um, if you ever want to go any farther. Like, it's very difficult to, to move up in the industry. It's either own a restaurant or continue being a manager for the rest of your career. Um, so it just kind of, it worked out that I didn't continue there. And at the same time, UCSF was like, we'd really like to have you full time and we're pretty sure we can get it approved. And so they fought to get that approved for me. And I, I really enjoyed my time working there. Well, think of all the free wine you could have had. Oh, that was the That's biggest. That's one missed opportunity. That was hard because I don't know if you guys know this, but industry takes care of industry. So for those, what, first seven years of my drinking years, I didn't drink till I was 21. So um, I got free tastings anywhere I went in Napa, Sonoma, Paso. Uh, I, re I really miss mm. having my, my business card that got me a lot of free drinks. <laughs> Dila, you know what's funny about you? I know that you're not lying about not drinking wine until you're 21. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> She's not lying just for the podcast. Nope. <laughs> I, am, I am proud to say that. I hope my kids take me seriously when I say that. Um, but all I can do is pray on that front because uh, my husband did not wait till he was 21. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a degree in film mm -hmm. and then you made a switch to instructional technology. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little about that pivot? It was a very natural pivot. There's a lot of it. It's a it's a skill set that turned out to be rather desirable, which was nice for me. Um, a lot of people come into instructional design and instructional technology already being in a teaching field, but with next to no experience in art uh, or computers for that matter. And it's, it's an asset, definitely to be able to, to, to know the fundamentals of art, like the basic ones, the actual fine art fundamentals, and to be able to be as well-versed as I was at the time, especially with the, the softwares being used and the, just the computer graphics interfaces in general, made it really easy for me to develop content. Content, educational technology content is, you know, reliant on technology and um, it became kind of a natural fit to look at what could be done in that world of educational technology when I already knew how to operate film, I already knew how to use a camera, I already knew how to use um, 3D software, I already knew a lot of those things and then just to take the thing that I had been doing for the six years which was developing curriculum 
and apply that concept um, with a, like a natural marriage of skills. Well, you touched on it a little bit, but just um, just to clarify for our listeners who might not know what instructional design is, um, could you just maybe explain what that what that profession is and what makes what makes good and effective instructional design and what makes it like difficult to achieve sometimes? Sure. I love just telling people I'm an instructional designer and just waiting because there's a lot of eyebrows go up and the, you know, the furrowed brow and they're not sure should they ask, should they not ask because nobody really knows what we do. Do I care? Do I, not <laughs> do care? I care? Is, is, that, is it interesting? It sounds kind of boring. The word instruction was in there. Yeah. Um, but the word designer was also in there, which usually piques people's interest. So instructional design is quite literally the way it sounds is the design of instruction and what um, I would say in your education, what you're trained to do is to learn about the learner, to understand the process of creating um, coursework or curriculum and uh, how to maximize learner retention and learner engagement um, while creating something that somebody can learn from. So the ADDIE model is what everybody, you know, is kind of the root of the instructional design world, um, which is a a model for how to determine what somebody needs to learn, how to determine how they will best learn it, how to determine how to engage them with it, and how to review what you've made with, you know, the learner perspective to see if it's been effective, like how they actually learned what they set out to learn. And it's it's been around for a lot longer than people realize. It, uh, so many things in technology and, and whatnot, it has a lot of its roots in the military and the need to roll out instruction, effective instruction across large groups um, in, in colleges and in the military. And the- Oh, I always thought maybe it started with like, um general government jobs, but specifically the military. Yeah, it was specifically the military. Um, the, I want to say it was, it was a military institution in Florida, if I remember correctly. Um, but Can I, mean, I ask the, you a question? The, the internet, that's where we got the internet too, was from the military, so. How, um, how did bartending, what have you taken from bartending? into instructional design. Mm? Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. William is so mm -hmm. pleased with that question. <laughs> His face and is glowing. Oh, no, yeah. I'm really curious. Yeah. Oh, I actually I have, I have what I think is a decent answer, an interest in human psychology. Mm. I think a lot of what makes you a good bartender, I mean, you are an unpaid therapist is what you are as a bartender, especially in a place where you might have a lot of regulars. People come to the bar and they look to the bartender for two things. They look for you to listen to their problems and feed them alcohol while they <laughs> talk about them. And um, I would say what makes you a good bartender is your observation skills while you're doing that. You need to know, obviously, you need to be a mixologist, but you also need to um, be attentive and be mindful both of what you're saying and what they're doing and, you know, and quite literally mindful of how many drinks they've had because you would like them to get home. Um, and as, as a, an instructional designer, I feel like that same kind of interest in human psychology, just understanding what someone's thinking, what they're, how they're interpreting what's in front of them, um, is what really makes you a good instructional designer because it, it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all model. So you kind of have to 
take off your designer hat and put yourself into the, the learner seat and think like a learner and, and, and apply their psychology to the material you want them to learn. So then I would imagine that uh, ineffective instructional design is just not being attentive to the customer slash learner and not noticing that they've had one too many glasses of wine and huh. are stumbling into their car. Um, kind of, yeah, I would say ineffective, in my opinion, ineffective instructional design is solely focused on the curriculum. Here's everything I want to teach and, you know, bleh, here it all is. Now learn it. Um, it's just that, nope, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, a great example, if you want to think to me, I, I always compare instructional design to marketing. That's what you're doing. It's a, if you watch commercials, they, they are instructional design. They, they are intending to instruct a consumer to go spend money on something. And they are very crafty at it because mm. they pay attention to human psychology. They look at where their audience is coming from, what motivates them, what appeals to them. And as a result, they achieve that call to action. Their product sells. They get people to go do something. You want to do that as an instructional designer. You want to get them to go do something. You want to get them to apply that knowledge. And sometimes doing is just learning the next piece. It's sharing that knowledge further. It's being better at their job and applying that to what they do, implementing it into their, you know, in the case of medical practice, into their own medical practice. And it, it's, it's, it's marketing. Is, is human psychology um, a big part of the formal education for instructional design? No, not really. Nah, I, not I would really. say that's kind of my own take on it. Um, there's some amount of like brain science. Yeah, when you there's a little bit. Start with instructional design. Um, they do talk a little bit about um, like Badgley and Hitch's model of working memory. So like there's that concept of, of understanding how people retain information um, briefly gets discussed. But I wouldn't say, I would say it was in my program anecdotally, like my instructors talked about its importance from their personal experience and being amazing instructors, but it wasn't in the textbooks. Interesting. Ooh, I would Did hope that the instructors in the instructional technology program were excellent instructors. They were. <laughs> at, at San Francisco State, they really were. That program has been around for over 20 years, and I wanted to take every course they offered if I'd had the time and money. There's so many different little niches of design work. I feel like design is such, it's almost like a, a failure of a word because like everything's designed. And like, you know, um, in terms of like the human psychology, there's a ton of that in like a user interface and user experience design. And I wonder, I mean, I wonder why, like you point out, Dila, that like, a lot of things that you don't think of as instructional design have instructional design in them. Like, why do we separate all these work, these terms? And it's, it's kind of weird because they, they all could learn from each other. They should. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so, so much of the instructional design is corporate. It's, it's, it's really, it's built the, the, the industry itself really feeds into corporate education. And so anyone listening to this who's ever had a corporate job can probably uh, relate to having taken one or more uh, corporate education modules that just are terrible um, because they don't pay attention to those. They're, they're just the absolute basics of here's the information thrown at you, watch it, read it, listen to it, 
answer a few multiple choice questions and here's your certificate. Yeah, it's like our it's like they, training. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they add these meaningless uh, descriptors and and terms like instructional and user experience um, to kind of delineate which industry they're automatically like categorized in. Because, like you said, I mean, if it's all like revolving around. Um, you know, directly communicating with the customer or the learner or whoever, if it's all like part of the same universe, um, it's like these descriptors are like made up almost to, to denote like where they belong in the world. Right. I guess it's sort of uh, whatever the end goal, the end product is, those descriptors sort of predict what sort of end goal you're going for. Because I know... Uh, Dila and I have done a couple instructional design video sequences, and a lot of those are corporate focused. And so the end goal is always like make more money. Um, and it the feel of the material is just different. Speaking of Dila, you used to be an instructional designer at a huge company, Apple. Can you tell us a bit about that and how it's different? Uh, working at a place like Stanford? Oh, well, I would say there's about a tenth of the creative freedom. That's like the biggest, <laughs> honestly, that's the biggest difference. That's more, that's more than I thought, you know, that they would have. Well, and the only reason I got that freedom at all was because of the video production animation background that I had. So I was, well, the majority of the instructional design corporate world is, is independent contractors. There are very few that are actually with the company because um, it's not necessarily seen as a position that needs to integrate uh, with the rest of the company. It's, you're kind of like an add-on. And as a result, you're much more easily you know, chopped off when budgets get cut. So I think on the team that I was on, the individuals in charge of the team we're trying their best to make it feel like you were still a part of the team. But the general feeling at Apple, for at least where I was and from the other people that I talked to, was that you were definitely made to make sure you knew you weren't technically part of the company. And um, Nice. Great. Yeah, I mean, they, they tried to include us in some of the stuff, but you just, you didn't get the same rights and privileges, and you were definitely expected to take your marching orders, produce your work, and not waste time. Like, stay away from our soda fountains. Yeah, well, yeah, unless, well, the coffee, they want you to have the coffee, um, but. <laughs> so that's like engine oil, you know? Like you gotta yeah, keep but the like, motor running. The, like the, the staff party that might happen once a year, we weren't invited to that. In fact, it was even worse. At one point, we were like in our cubicles working while they were all having their little party in the kitchen. It was oh, like, ouch. Oh, man. Yeah, it was a little bit harsh. And, uh, but when Apple does like the big thing, every every two, three months, Apple does like fancy music guest comes on campus. I think while I was there, um, Pharrell, Pharrell came through. And then there's a bunch of free food and free alcohol and free non-alcoholic drinks for us to have between four and six. And contractors are invited to that. So we all get to get off a little bit early go get into very long lines to get our free food and our free drinks and listen to Pharrell sing for or perform for about 25 minutes. Um, and then the guests, like every, like every three or four months, was a new one every time. So we did at least get to do that. But as far as the work went, the, 
um, somebody else that works for the company more or less determines all of the direction, the, the creative strategy, the, you know, here's the template that you're going to use, here is the way that you will communicate with the engineers, here's the project manager who's going to be in charge for facilitating that communication. Um, you're very much a worker bee. And uh, while I appreciate, I would say the thing I appreciated the most was the salary. Um, that was one of the reasons I changed was because they offered me more money than um, than I was currently making at a job that was you know 15 minutes from my house versus a four-hour commute daily on a Whoa. train that I was taking. Yeah, I was when I was when I was commuting, I was going from Morgan Hill to San Francisco, and they wow. the job at UCSF allowed me to work from home the majority of the time. But when I had to go in, that was a pretty big lift. And uh, at the time, I didn't have any kids, but we knew that was in the near future. And I knew I didn't want to be on a train for four hours. Um, Got to catch point. up on all those EdTech Cafe podcasts. I could have. I would have all of my <laughs> podcasts and books on tape totally done. Uh, so I switched. And... Um, the creative freedom, like I said, I, I got a little bit of it because of my skill set, and I think I felt like some of the other contractors were not too happy about that. I got to work on some of the corporate projects, one of which uh, was really fun. We made a little video um, when when the company moved to mobile app ordering for their um, Apple cafes. We got to do like a little little vignette video, and I got to direct and produce that. So that was fun. Uh, it was nice to take a break from um, what were we using at the time. It wasn't storyline. It was Captivate. Captivate. Everything we did was in Captivate. Yeah. Mm, love that program. Captivate. <laughs> it, Captivate <laughs> is like the, uh, um, as a redhead, I can say this, redheaded stepchild <laughs> of all of the Adobe products. <laughs> Thank you for prefacing. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Yeah. As, as, as the sister of a redheaded stepchild, I totally know what you're talking about, actually. Um, <laughs> the Adobe Captivate really hits its stride in the corporate world, though. That's where its place is, is for creating something that someone is going to build in a mold, pre-done, basic, like, you know, easy to turn out, yeah. multiple choice questions, click to advance, and there it is. I remember my first, what was it? Whoa, three weeks at Stanford and we broke Captivate uh, <laughs> trying to produce the vaping course. Was that either yeah, vaping or musculoskeletal? One of the two. Oh, vaping. It was definitely e-cigarettes. Yeah. I think that's definitely a strength of working in, in our team is, is that we don't really care about the formats and the templates and we actively work against them. Probably, probably it's not a good idea to try to break Captivate as much as we did, <laughs> but um, probably it's not a good idea to work work with Captivate in, in general. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're if you're creative like all of us, you know. I don't think that we're ever trying to break programs, but we sure have broken a lot. <laughs> I think it's the beauty of that freedom. Like we get like, hey, you can do this. Well, then I can like, we, we go totally outside of what it was like, you know, initially designed for like, oh, well, if it's got X, Y, and Z capability, then I can technically, technically I could do this and then this and then this. And if I add some of this, 
And that's when Captivate goes, what are you talking about? Stop. Whereas, <laughs> whereas for a big company like Apple, if you break something, you're probably going to get fired. Yeah, no, it's uh, no, I, I would say the, the politics within the, um, the work pool were what going to get you fired more than anything. There was, there's a lot of politics at Apple. I so, say, um, speaking of Adobe products, oh, I think I have internet, internet germs, germs are again. Back. My delay is here. <laughs> um, so everything that you just sounded said about instructional design at a big company basically sounds like the opposite of how I think of instructional design because I think of it as uh, like a very uh, engaging process with the subject matter experts with a lot of back and forth and uh, that it's all really based on the story. And I feel like I haven't even heard you say the word story yet today. Well, I think that has to do, there, there are some cases, um, there are so many different teams at Apple, and in many cases, I'm sure that is, that that is the truth. Um, and when I did that training for how to use the mobile app, there was a level of story involved. There's only so much story, I mean, to their, to their credit, that you can add when you're teaching Tableau. And, uh, what we were in charge of, the team that I worked for, was the finance team. Um, and you want to talk about dry content, finance, <laughs> finance computer program skills are not exactly super <laughs> engaging. And the majority of what we made was meant to teach engineers how to use the software and the updates in the software. It was, um, we weren't looking to entertain them. They wanted it to be quick and easy and out. Like, here it is, you need to know how to do this and this and this to process these reports. Here's how you do that. So it was like a lot of tutorials, essentially, is what we were, what we were creating. Mm. Other, other, other sections of, of large corporations like Apple, Adobe, Facebook, um, Google, there, there is an element of story. And if you're lucky enough to be on one of those teams, I would say um, in like product design, uh, that and product use, there's, there's more of that there in um, in software skills not so much yeah and also our team is strange like we have a i feel like we have an unusual amount of freedom um which uh has allowed us to make our own emphasis on people and storytelling that i mean i think it would be unusual in a lot of places to, to see what we're doing. Even other like medical schools I've spoken to. Well, well don't let anyone hear you say that, William. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I've always said after, I mean, I've had a lot of jobs, believe it or not, because I started working really young. So what I noticed pretty quickly is that micromanagement is the death of productivity. And a lot of the freedoms I think that we enjoy as a team have to do with the fact that we are not micromanaged. And we are not micromanaged yeah. because, and I'm getting, I want to quantify this by saying I am not knocking any of the previous teams or jobs that I've ever had. That being said, um, this is the first job that I've had, the first team that I've worked on where, how can I say this nicely? <laughs> where I, I feel like everybody pulls their own weight. <laughs> Everybody really is, is like passionate about what they do, committed to what they do, committed to their own excellence, and as a result, committed to excellence as a team. But is like 
there's not a single one of us that's like that's not that, that ever utters the word that's not my job. That is, I've never heard that, and I've definitely heard that in every other job I've had where someone's like, I don't have to do that. That's not part of my job. That's so and so's job, and that kind of an attitude and that kind of a work ethic makes it hard to create like a true sim like symbiosis within your team. And our team doesn't have that problem. We don't need to be micromanaged because we all work really hard and we. We hit our, our deadlines and we communicate with each other very well. So, I think part and us. parcel. I think part and parcel with the freedom um, is is the f perhaps the fact that we take in so many different types of projects. Um, definitely in um, the subject and the content that we're teaching. It, it the the topics are so wide ranging that it kind of encourages us. Um, even, even from top down, it incur they were encouraged to kind of try out new things, new skills, um, new tools. And I think like the freedom that we feel is just this ability to also just pick up these new skills. Um, cause I know for, for me, just having my hands down in the dirt, like, I, like five years ago, I was a total, <laughs> much more, much more simple media producer, um, but now it's like, you know, I'm even making this podcast and doing sound mixing, which I never would have thought uh, I would have done. But hey, that's, that's a our great team. Point. That's our team for you. That's a great point that we not only like we all work in a bunch of different media um, and also the topics are always like new and different. And Dila, you've led you've worked on a lot of projects here. Um including a bunch for continuing medical education. Can you tell us uh, about either a topic that was like wild that you wouldn't have predicted working on uh, or one of your favorite projects with them? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because our work with CME is, I think, like the foundation for this freedom that we're feeling. Like even though... They're their own separate organization with their own rules and all of that. Um, just that that range of projects and subject um, subjects that we covered were, I think, so crucial to letting us explore. Well, because we had the freedom from the beginning. It was each of these projects that were all tied to that Pfizer grant. Um, the ownership of how we presented the content was, for the most part, on our team that we work with faculty and, and we definitely open like, do you have any suggestions, anything you've ever seen? And that's a, a really great way I like to approach design. And I know William does this too, is to encourage people like, what, what have you used as a learner that you really liked? Sh send us examples of, of curriculum of things that you thought, oh, this was a really great way to learn something. And we'll see if we can kind of build on whatever it is uh, was used to create those materials. And so sometimes the faculty have come to us and go, I really, you know, I really want to do something, you know, you know, the, with branching. I really like that choose your own adventure. And so we, we took that concept and we made it our own. We, we, we really let the content drive what we chose to do technologically. And um, as a result, got something a little bit unique each time because it was specific to what had to be learned and how it had to be learned and how it had to be applied. The audiences vary, even within CME. A lot of the stuff that we're creating is definitely for primary care physicians, but the but it's a wide range. Like sometimes it's basic concepts of uh, of a treating a disease like migraine, 
Other times it's implementing different screening tools or implementing a different way of communicating with patients. But what has been really interesting to me is to see that that, that thing that was almost always present across every course was those bedside manner skills always seem to be something that are identified as a gap. The mm. communication with patients, how we communicate with patients um, in each of these topics, and that goes from psychology to musculoskeletal to vaping to um, hypertension, there was always um, a learning objective that tied to effectively communicate these concepts to patients. Um, because that's where we find physicians struggle. And that's where physicians, when they're reviewed by their patients, are like, I didn't understand what you were saying. <laughs> and so we're trying to find a way to help them help them do that. And that's a great way to include story is because communication obviously is, is story driven. So the project I would say that, that got me doing something that I didn't necessarily expect to be doing, um, What's, well, you know, it wasn't the most of, I, I would probably say the, um, the identifying, identifying psychosis in young, in children mm -hmm. and adolescents, because that one presented a unique problem, and you're teaching people, um, you're teaching primary care physicians how to identify something that's just completely out of their spectrum. They're, they're not trained in psychology or psychiatry. Um, they're trained in ailments of the physical body, and a lot of times, as we definitely see uh, in in our lives, more often I think lately, or at least it's getting more attention, is that mental health just gets neglected. Yeah. And this was the first time where we got to work on mental health and and how that relates to primary care. And in order to do that, we had to try and show this content, like literally show it from two different perspectives. This is what you're seeing as a physician. This is what you see when you see your patient. But this is how your patient sees you when they're experiencing psychosis. Oh, that was so much fun to make. How, how, do, we, how do we do that? Um, well, our, our ever intrepid media designer, Andrew, um, uh, and William. <laughs> I wasn't trying to plug myself, <laughs> or, I promise. I know, I know. Um, I, I forget who unearthed this tool. I don't know if it was you, Andrew, or you, William. But Eco. That, Eco uh, was the one that we use that literally is it's a tool that gives the person, the, the consumer, the learner, the option to click a button and see the same thing from a different perspective. Kind of like a multilinear film. Um, trying to think of, I know it's probably not a film everybody's seen, but there are a lot of films out there, it's the best way to explain it, where you see the story from different perspectives, the same thing happening at the same time, Snatch or Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels are the two that come to my mind immediately, where you're following different characters, and it's kind of like that. You're gonna see this scene, and you can choose which character to follow, so you can watch it through all the way as a physician, or you can go back and watch it all the way through from the perspective of the patient, or you can kind of switch back and forth as you're going through the timeline. And that tool, I mean, it, it exactly fit what we were trying to show, which was that the patient just isn't seeing the world the way that you're seeing it. What's um, kind of interesting about that is that that tool um, is like the business model for that company that makes that interactive video tool is mainly to like sell to advertisers. Like the idea that interactive mm -hmm. video uh, engages users, you know, three X times from uh, traditional video, blah, blah, blah. But here we are like uh, 
I feel like we've done this multiple times, like co-opting like new technologies from other domains and using it for education. Definitely. Uh, things that weren't necessarily expected to be used, especially in medical education. Yeah. Um, we've definitely found a use for. But that was the most unique one, for sure, because of, because of the way that we presented the curriculum. Um, I think that we should probably mention that uh, continuing med medical education is uh, something that doctors are required uh, to do every year to keep their medical license. And it can be on all sorts of different topics, either something that's super brand new to them, like perhaps um, treating a patient with psychosis or things that are already in their field uh, and just like getting additional knowledge about something they already know. And we we do a lot of those sorts of courses. Prior to and our- we're very Oh, go ahead, Adela. I was gonna say, we're really innovative in the way that we've done those courses. Those courses were very unique in the field. Traditional continuing medical education is just lectures um, and lectures that have been recorded and then posted for called enduring materials so that someone can access them later. So they're usually online because that was my question is, is traditionally no. are they done in person or is what Stanford CME doing with um, a lot of these online courses fairly new? Traditional CME was just attending lectures. I mean, before before the the age of information, before the age of the internet, uh, was I mean, it goes back quite a ways to to maintain your license to practice. Each state has their own requirements for their boards, mm -hmm. and sometimes it is a general requirement you must complete X number of hours. Sometimes it is a more specific requirement. For for example, right now the state of California requires twelve hours of pain management related. Um, continuing medical education for all primary care physicians in order to continue oh, to practice. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a direct product of an attempt to address the opioid epidemic, to help people understand that there are multiple ways to manage pain outside of prescribing an opioid. <laughs> Please stop prescribing opioids. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically the um, message. It was, a, it was a, a, a dangerous, the medical community had a, a very big ship to, to turn back around and so that's one of the ways that they're doing it is by requiring all physicians you all need to learn something about this topic um, but the even now even today I would say the vast majority of CME is still live conferences live live lectures and obviously in the time of COVID all of that has moved online because we can't really get into groups uh, in in large amounts anymore speaking, but um, speaking of COVID tell us how has your work, your life, or your art changed during shelter-in-place? Uh, well, I have children. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot to put that in the bio. <laughs> so um, I think like all the other parents out there during COVID, um, a lot of the systems that we had in place to um, keep our children active and engaged got flipped over. And... Um, <laughs> There was, there was a lot of funny things that I remember seeing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of great internet memes and, and postings I've seen over the last six months about joking about teachers, parents finding out that the teacher wasn't the problem. And just like that, nobody ever asked a stay-at-home mother what she did all day ever again. <laughs> um, because that's the truth. A lot of us who are working parents, I, I'm parenting 
three children in a relationship with two, you know, co-parenting with one parent that doesn't work and the two parents in this house do work. And not having childcare makes it really hard uh, to work. <laughs> so I would say the biggest change was kind of settling into a way to both take care of them and still get my work done um, and, and sleep and maintain some semblance of sanity. And I'm not gonna lie, as a result, my kids have watched a lot more Disney movies than I ever thought they would by this age. Oh man. <laughs> um, they've definitely been allowed more media time. We're, that's another big joke. Like, remember, remember when we used to ration their, their media time? Ha ha ha. But uh, we have a very flexible team. So uh, I would say the only thing that changed for me professionally was that um, Rather than sticking to West Coast hours, I was working a lot of weird hours. I was working when they napped. I was working uh, after they went to bed or before they got up. I was going to say, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we wake up the next morning and see a message from you on Slack from like 11 p.m. <laughs> like, uh, Dila, so what were you doing up? That's when I can get it done. It's, 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 it's balancing out now. But it was kind of interesting because we have a team spread out across the country. So it was more like, to some degree, I would just get up with the East Coast. Like, hi, guys. <laughs> What are you doing? Let's have a meeting. Let's chat. Um, and so, like, you know, William and and um, and Britt and Mike, you know, I got to, I think, talk to them more in the last six months than I have before that because we were on similar schedules. Um, so, yeah, I would say that's how COVID really affected me. And but it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a domino effect. Like it affected me in that way personally, but it also affected my stakeholders that way. A lot of these people that I work with that I'm getting content from are going through the same exact thing. They've got school-age kids at home. They've got a, 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 a spouse that also works, and they're at home trying to figure out, okay, my kids are going to be online at this time, and I'm going to be online at this time, and then I'm going to put them, you know, they're going to go take a nap, and I can get this done, and, you know, can my internet handle it if all five of us need to be online at the same time? So it's a very interesting time to be uh, online. Have you had a worry that Holly or Henry, they are becoming clingier, needier, just by being home around you guys all the time? That absolutely happened. Um, that it when because so my daughter's school, it's a small private Christian school that's two blocks from my house. And they got their waiver. So they started back to in-person schooling with very strict precautions and a very different style of education. Uh, last Monday and even before that actually on the on a rare occasion where I would have to leave the house for something when when nanny came back or about a nanny that comes to our house who's family and yeah Holly who was four who previously you know for the most part didn't care if I came or went all of a sudden didn't like it when I left without oh, her no. yeah she had a hard a little bit of separation anxiety there um and the first last week, the first three days of her going back to school and also starting a different school time, like she'd always been in a half day. And because of her age and where she is in school, she just started a full day. And so she was very like, I don't want to leave. Mommy, don't make me go. Um, That's a big you know, transition. It, it really was. She had a hard time at the beginning. It was a bit of a shock that she didn't get to leave after lunch as she did in preschool. So when when... I didn't come get her after lunch. She was a little concerned about that. Um, 
now she's fine. Today she like told me to peace out and walked up and <laughs> got her temperature taken and got her hand sanitizer and she was off. She didn't care. She was even telling me because I don't normally walk her to school. Jason does. Um, this morning I had to walk her and she's like, okay, when we get to this tree, we're going to put on my mask and then we're going to go around the corner and you need to stop there and you're going to let me go up to Miss Beverly and she's going to give you my hand sanitizer and then I'm going to take my temperature and then you can leave. It's like, all right. So. Wow. Sounds like a future instructional designer in the making. Oh, she very much is. It's actually a little bit creepy. The things that she like, she... Here's my favorite instructional design moment, my proud instructional design mom moment. We ran out of honey. She's like, we need more honey. I need to write a letter to the bees to make us some more honey. So she gets out her crayons and she gets out her paper and she goes, okay, I've drawn a picture of our house and a picture of the flowers and a picture of the bee. And I'm telling the bee that they need to go from the flower to the hive to make the honey to bring it to our house. It's like, wow. Those are really specific <laughs> instructions that you're giving these bees. She but I'm so proud. all the steps. <laughs> all the steps. She had it all figured out. Like she's like from start to finish, she was going to get her honey and she needed to make sure the bees understood how they were supposed to do that. I can imagine that like uh, yeah. a four-year-old. Yay, Holly. <laughs> I can imagine that like one of those Ikea instructions without any words, just the pictures. They would probably be more effective <laughs> those instructions. Well, Dila, I imagine that you don't have much free time nowadays, but is there anything um, new in your self-care routine or some media that you've picked up that's been giving you energy and hope uh, to get uh. through this weird year? <laughs> yes, actually, there is. Um well, what's funny is my media time, thank God for subtitles. My son still wants me to sit in the room. Everybody else can put him to sleep. He's just turned two and leave, like put him in his crib. But he tells me, Mommy, big chair. He oh wants gosh. me to sit Henry in the big chair. Two? Henry is two. Wow, and insists that I sit in his rocking chair until he falls asleep. Like, <laughs> he just needs to make sure I'm still there. And so I, 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 the only time I get to watch any shows of my own then don't involve, you know singing rodents or talking pigs is um, <laughs> is in that chair watching on my phone on the dim setting with the subtitles on <laughs> usually reruns of outlander um <laughs> but in in uh and i know jess watches this show in but i'm starting not, to watch I'm not that all show, the way through don't worry i'm not gonna even talk about the show <sighs> not gonna talk about the show because it was but it was by watching that show that a different advertisement showed up on one of my other social media accounts for this thing called My Peak Challenge. And it's um, a combination charity and like exercise and support community. It's very difficult to describe, um, but it's run by one of the actors. It's like his, his, his philanthropy project. And that has been my, like my whole self-care thing has been tied into that. It's been really great. You sign up, it's, you get a every month uh, a plan of a workout plan, very specific. There's like a recipe thing, a recipe portion of it, and there are workouts that are really easy to do at home. And I'm, I, I granted, I'm luckier than most. I have kind of a gym in my garage, so I can I actually can do a lot of the exercises with the weights and things like that. But even if I didn't have them, there are um, 
just oh, uh, what are they called? Variations that you could do if you don't have the materials. Kind of so sounds like, like kind of sounds like Fitness Blender, which I've only just learned about recently. Um, could be. because of Be Well, um, you just uh, kind of make your profile in a way or answer these few few questions on like whether you have equipment at home or not, whether you want to focus more on cardio or a specific part of your body, um, and then it like churns up a workout routine for you. It's kind of like that. It's like there's um the the there's a different there's a um a uh, person a coach that has developed all of these routines who owns a gym in Scotland, and um, the funny thing is, while I'm not huge on social media, I definitely use it. And I would say, what finally worked about this for me was that concept of community. That there's a Facebook page, and it's a little bit of accountability. Everyone's like, okay, I did work out three of this week and oh my god I almost died or you know uh, we all do burpees for our birthday you have to do however however old you're turning is the number of burpees you do on your birthday and, <laughs> and I think sometimes like getting on like okay everyone else is doing it I'll go do it really for some weird psychological reason made me do it um, and it made it become a routine and that routine and it's the other thing is this, this these workouts are formulated in a way where it's like it's the same workout for the whole month, like the week repeats itself, but it's things that you can very easily up the intensity of as you get better at them. But because I already know what's coming, it's a lot, I'm a lot more likely to do it because I remember it from the last Monday. I was like, oh yeah, I remember this one. Okay, I can go do this. And it just, it works really well. And it has really, I think, been the only self-care thing I've managed to keep in my routine um, because it's easy to do at any time of day. Sometimes my kids are doing it with me, sort of. Um, <laughs> but I, I love it. It's a lot of fun. That's great. It's so important to find those things that can keep us going and keep us moving. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Stila. You're, you're just such a smart lady with uh. so much knowledge on so many different <laughs> topics. A polite way of calling me a know-it-all, but thank you. <laughs> oh, you're definitely, definitely a know-it-all. <laughs> yes. Hermione Granger is my spirit animal. <laughs> well, best of luck with the kids. We will get through this. And I hope you're still enjoying those Outlander reruns. <laughs> yes. You must catch up. It was, the last season was pretty good. I think I'm on episode three, so I'll get through oh. soon. Right. Well, thank you, Dila. It was a lot of fun having you. Yeah, thank you, Dila. Thank you, guys. so much for joining us today for this sixth episode of EdTech Cafe. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast, and uh, have a great week. Bye!